Let's turn together to the scriptures of God's word as we read from one of these psalms this morning, from Psalm 48, the 48th psalm. Now, this psalm was evidently written at a period in the life of Israel when the nation was in great danger and her capital city, Jerusalem, threatened evidently by surrounding armies. And the Lord most wonderfully intervened and rescued his people. And the summary of the psalm occurs at the very end of it in verse 14, which is the subject of the sermon this morning later in the service. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there. Pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God. God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, Your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go round about her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Thanks be to the New Testament scripture reading, which is a very short one this morning from Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, toward the end of the chapter. Now we will read simply the words of the doxology from verse 33 to verse 36, which follows, you remember, the long uh, teaching of the Apostle Paul, the long excursus on the place of Israel in the purposes of God, the place of the Jewish people, And summarizing all his conclusions, he is moved into the words of one of the most magnificent doxologies in the whole of the scriptures, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now at this point in the service as usual, the four and five-year-olds are dismissed for children's church and the congregation will prepare to sing hymn number 397, 397, what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. Now this morning, as a sort of an interlude Sunday before we turn to a series of Sunday morning sermons in the astonishing book of the Acts of the Apostles, I have felt very moved that we should look together as a congregation at one of the Psalms on this occasion. It is one of the greatest Psalms, in my opinion, in the whole of the Psalter, And there are, of course, many outstanding psalms that are familiar to the people of God, such as Psalm 103 with its exhortation to bless the Lord and the 23rd Psalm, familiar even to the youngest children in Christian homes, and many others like these. But the 48th Psalm, in my opinion, is one of the very greatest, one of the hierarchy, if you like, of these glorious psalms that are given to us as a portion of the word of God. And I invite you, I invite you to turn to that psalm uh, with me in your Bible this morning and particularly to look with me at the very final verse of that great psalm. Now the psalm itself is celebrating very clearly a victory uh, by the people of God over some great enemy and in circumstances of very real and very great danger. And the center of the psalm, as you will have noticed, is the city of Jerusalem that is mentioned in the first three verses, and you remember that as we read it a few minutes ago. It is Jerusalem in particular that has been threatened by these invading armies, and they have come around the city. But something remarkable and astonishing has happened. When all it seemed was lost, God himself intervened with a most miraculous and wonderful deliverance, and Israel was rescued out of their peril and out of their danger. And the remainder of the psalm is an exhortation first to Israel, and then at the very end of the psalm to the whole church of God to magnify his name and to remember that he alone is the source of help and deliverance for his people. And so it comes to that glorious concluding verse, this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the very end. Now already I suggest to you that this much should be evident. But the psalm is much more than history. It has a much bigger setting than merely the hills of Judah around Jerusalem. And that Zion or Jerusalem is much more than a local capital in this great psalm. In fact, the psalm is describing something that concerns the whole church of God through the whole span of time through the whole earth itself. 
In other words, we can already distinguish the outlines of the Jerusalem that is above. The church of God, if you like, militant upon earth, triumphant in heaven, with its great walls and foundations, which are forever. And here in its militant state, with its great struggles against the powers of evil and darkness in this world. Now you see, it is these issues that are fundamentally in view in this psalm. And this is why it is not simply a piece from the history books. But its whole theme, you remember, is taken up in that great hymn that we sing in our hymn book. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. It concerns you, and it concerns myself this morning as we have come into the presence of God. Well then, I want to take the single concluding verse from this great description of the Lord around his people and to apply it to your life and to mine. You see, it seems to me in this great concluding verse of the psalm that the psalmist is taking three rich and refreshing cups And one by one, he is lifting them to the lips of God's people. And he is saying to them, drink this draft and be refreshed by it. And I want us then to take these cups and to see what they will do for us. My dear friend, some of you have come here this morning discouraged, personally in your Christian lives. Some of you are discouraged about the church life, perhaps, of this congregation, and you are beginning to say, now, in what direction is the Lord leading us? There has been a sifting process. You have been saying, what is happening? What is our future? What is our goal? You are concerned about the church life, or wider in the denomination, the directions that it is taking. You are concerned about the nation in its godlessness, in its falling moral standards, in its rejection of the word of God as the guide for life. You are concerned for the safety of this people and the standards that have made it great. Well, what is the word of the Lord for you in these varying conditions this morning? And the answer is in three very rich and refreshing cups. Now you see the first of these cups is in the words of that concluding verse, this God is our God. This God is our God. Now, my dear friends, you may say to me this morning, what is there so remarkable in that kind of description of God? This God. You may say to me, and rightly so this morning, but that description of God is so commonplace that I see nothing very wonderful or applicable in it to myself. After all, you may continue, the word this is used in our common speech and parlance almost every time we open our mouths. This church, this person, this job, this piece of work I have to do, there is nothing particular, particularly remarkable or outstanding in the word. And that is true. But what I am suggesting to you this morning, and what I believe the inspired psalmist is suggesting to you this morning, is that when you take that little four-letter word and apply it 
to the name and character of God, you have something truly extraordinary and wonderful in the highest degree of all. Do you see what the psalmist is doing? He is saying, the God whom we worship and serve is not any God. He is not the God of the idol nations around us who worship their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, who have to be moved about from place to place, who have mouths but cannot speak, ears that cannot hear. Our God is altogether different from this. He is this God. Now, my dear friends, you see what the psalmist is doing. He is saying to the people of God, think, use your minds, put content into this description of God. This wonderful, unique person who is the Lord Jehovah. Think of what he has done for us all through our history. That mighty God who took us as a nation out of Egypt with all its military power, with all its economic strength, who divided away through the Red Sea and took his people through on dry land, who fed them for 40 years in the wilderness with bread from heaven and water that flowed out of the rock, who led us victoriously into the land that he had promised, fulfilling his great covenant to our forefathers, who established us in the land, who blessed us when we were obedient to him. It is this God who is our God, the God who works and who acts and who delivers his people and who honors his covenant and will never see it broken. But you see, there is more than that in the little word this. Has he not written the whole of the psalm in front of his concluding verse? And you and I come to that concluding verse and we say, well, what kind of a God is this God? And the answer is, he is the same God who has been described in this psalm. And what great and glorious things he has done. Did you notice as we read through the psalm, the conditions out of which it was, it was written? Here is a crisis in the life of the people of God. Their very existence is being threatened by the invading armies of the aliens. Their very capital city, Zion, Jerusalem, is under siege. And it seems as though all help has gone. And here are the people of God shut into the holy city that God has chosen. And they say to themselves, what can we do? Our strength is gone. And then they say, you notice in verse 3, God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. And then the psalm goes on, as you remember, to describe how the armies surround the city. And they say, ah, oh, it's all up with them. But instead what happens is this, that suddenly trembling seizes the enemy, like a woman in the pains of travail, and they're driven away by some outstanding intervention of the Lord that is not indicated or described, but clearly it's there. And the whole situation, you see, is turned upside down. Now this is the God, you see, that the psalmist is reminding us is our God. 
the God who comes to his people in times of crisis, when every other hope is gone, it appears, and humanly all is lost. And he says, I want you to remember one thing, that God is your fortress and he is your great deliverer. My dear friends, can you not begin to see with me this morning that here is a most rich and refreshing cup for you and I as we bear upon our spirits the weight of a fading world? Have you not said throughout this past week there is no resting place for me here? There is no security in this world? There are some of our Christian men newly back from the fighting forces on the high seas. They well know where their security rests, not in the great guns of the fleet, not in the missiles and the wonders of modern warfare and scientific technology. It is because this God is the God of his people and nothing shall happen to them amiss but what he purposes and what he plans. My dear friends, let me take this one stage further. It is not only in the pages of Israel's history and in the words of this great psalm that we are reminded of this God. Is it not in the Westminster Confession, which you and I as modern believers subscribe to, that we see the wonders of our God and his character? I believe the second chapter of that great confession of faith outside of the scriptures to be the most wonderful and the most glorious description of the character of God that you can find anywhere. Have you read it recently? Have you said to yourself, what is this God like who is my God in the persons of the Father and the Son and the glorious Holy Spirit? Let me share some words from the Confession of Faith in its second chapter. Who is he? Well, say the Westminster divines, he is the one only living and true God who is infinite in his being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, unchangeable, immense, eternal, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, working all things according to the counsel of his own will, for his own glory. And with all, they say, most loving and gracious and merciful and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. My dear Christian friend this morning, have you made your meditation in these things? as you feel this weight of the fading world pressing upon you, have you said to your fainting spirit, This is my God, and he will not forsake me now. But some of you may be here this morning who are not Christian people, and I want to ask you very directly, do you know anything at all about this God? but I have been describing so inadequately this morning. Do you know anything about him? Do you know him? Has he become to you some of these wonderful things that I have shared with the congregation here? 
Do you know him to be most gracious in the forgiveness of your sins? Do you know him to be loving in his compassion to the sinner? Do you know him in his justice? But he says to each one of us, you must have dealings with me for your eternal destiny rests upon it. And have you come to that experience where your spirit and your heart within you has been bowed down in contrition and humility before the glory of God? And you have said to yourself, I am a creature of the dust and of clay, and he was sovereign God with whom I must have dealings. And have you come to him, my dear friend, in repentance and submission? that you in due season may be able to say with all the people of God, this God is our God forever and ever. Have you? But you see, there is a second great thing in this psalm. He is our God forever and ever. It is the second of these rich and refreshing cups, you see, that this man of God lifts to our lips to encourage us. Forever and ever, he is our God. Now, in the literal Hebrew rendering of the psalm, it is even more pointed and powerful. From eternity to eternity. From eternity past, before the world ever began, to eternity in the future, which will never end. His relationship with his people will never change. And you see, if the first cup that has been lifted to our lips told us that there can be no change in God himself, this, this tells us that time cannot make any change in his relationship with his people. You see, it's so significant, isn't it, that the psalmist doesn't say, now, he will be your God for this generation or for the next hundred years or for the next five generations. Forever and ever he will be your God. The whole current and passage of time will never make any difference in his relationship with you. As the poet has said, time writes no wrinkle upon the brow of the eternal. It writes many wrinkles upon your brow and mine. But it never makes any change to him. My dear friends, the passing of time will not alter God's purpose toward his people. Now, do you not feel encouraged by this thought this morning? The church's fortunes may ebb and flow, and they always do. The Christian centuries are testimony enough to that, that people come and people go. But the consistent testimony of the word of God and of this psalm is the Lord is the covenant God of his people, and in the end he always and everywhere has the last word. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be built in this and every age. And will not fail. Let me take three applications, if I may, from this portion of the psalm. You see, this word that God is ours forever and ever conveys to me, first of all, that the church in all the ages cannot be overcome. 
It has often been persecuted. It has often been pressed by the hand of the enemy and the opposer and the persecutor. But you see, it is built upon the rock. It is impregnable. As the great English Puritan William Gurnall says in one of his books, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It has often been in the sea, but never drowned. Seldom out of the fire, but never consumed. Sometimes swallowed up by human reason. But like Jonah in the whale's belly, it has been cast up again as a charge too heavy for the strongest stomach that ever persecutor had to digest. Well, what do you think of that? You see what varied fortunes and misfortunes have marked its history. Men might often have looked at it and said, God has washed his hands of his church. He's through with it. As men have seen apostasy from his truth that has unsettled the people of God to their very foundations. As there's been fierce persecution from outside, threatening the very life of God's people within. As there have been times of deadly ease and prosperity. When the people of God have said so tragically, I am rich, I have prospered, I don't need anything. And the very Lord of the church has been banished outside of its door. Well, as you and I look at these things, what do we say? The church has survived it all. More than that, it has grown, it has multiplied, it has increased across the face of the earth. And nothing has been able to stop it. Why? Because this God is forever and ever the God of his people. Now let me take a separate second application. You see, some may be saying here this morning, well, it is a great deal of time since Christ has died and suffered for sin, and all through these long centuries and ages, men have been multiplying sins up to heaven itself. Much time has passed. Is the death of Christ still powerful and efficacious to forgive sins today? Perhaps its merit has already been exhausted, and there is nothing left for me. Perhaps it's drained of all its power. Well, thank God that can never be the case. You see, he is our God forever and ever, and it is simply not possible that there will ever be an age in this world where men and women cannot turn to the gracious and holy Lord of heaven and earth and find forgiveness for their sins. Now here is a third and final application. Some of you who are the people of God and here this morning may be conscious of a period of darkness and of backsliding in your Christian lives. You know that you love the Lord, that you have truly turned to him, but you are conscious that things are not right in your soul. And it may be even that years in fellowship with God have been followed by years out of fellowship with him. And your state is one that is known as backsliding. And you have begun to say in your inmost heart, is there any possibility that I might be restored? to the grace of God again, 
So much time has been spent in this way. Can the Lord ever forgive me and make restitution of those years that have been lost? Well, let me reply to that question in this way by way of an illustration. I remember reading in one of the books by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I believe it is one that some of you have been reading recently, his great book, Preaching and Preachers, where he instanced the conversion of a man under his powerful ministry in the south of Wales many years ago. This man had come to Christ and had shown the evidences of true regeneration, and he continued in that state for a number of years and was well in that congregation. And then suddenly it seemed as though everything went to pieces. He left his wife for another woman after stealing money from her. The home broke up. He went deeper and deeper into debt and his friends gradually forsook him. And finally he drifted away to London, the great metropolis. And there in that capital city he tried to lose himself. And Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us what had happened to this man. Some of Lloyd-Jones's friends came to him and he said, well, they said, well, this man has never become a Christian. Look at his life now. Where is he now, they said. And Lloyd-Jones said that his reply was, he is truly one of the Lord's people and he will come back. Wait and see. And as I said, many years passed. And one evening in Westminster Chapel, where Dr. Lloyd-Jones was minister for so many years, he noticed as he began his prayer of intercession, the door in the upper gallery opened, and in came this man disheveled and downcast and took his seat in the very back. And the doctor led on in his prayer of intercession, during which he prayed for the backslider to be restored. And immediately, this man told the pastor afterwards, his attention was riveted. And he attended to the preaching of God's word that evening. And God did graciously restore this man to fellowship and to service once again. He lived a number of years and died triumphantly in Christ. Now, my dear friends, there is hope for the backslider. Because this God is our God forever and ever. He never will let go of those whom he has chosen and elected by his sovereign grace. And so we come finally to the third and last of these cups that the psalmist lifts to our lips. He will be our guide, he says, even to the very end, or as we can translate it, even to death itself. Well, this is the third rich and refreshing cup that we find here. What does it mean to us? Well, you see, it means this. That as there is nothing in God himself or in the passage of time that will ever change his relationship to his people, so there is nothing in our circumstances that can ever make him turn away from us. He will be our guide even unto death. Now, do you see what the psalmist is doing? He is saying to us, whatever happens to you, whatever sickness you have, whatever circumstances bring disaster into your life, whatever misfortunes cross your path, whatever failures in your business ventures may accompany you at certain seasons of your life, through each perplexing path of life, 
He is your guide. Oh, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, is this not both rich and renewing to your spirits? Let us make no mistake this morning. The paths of life are perplexing and difficult for the Christian. We do need a guide. We do not know the way through these circumstances alone by ourselves. And one of the greatest dangers on, of all for the Christian is this, that we may take a pathway that is not the right road and leads into bypath meadow and doubting castle and brings us under the control of giant despair. Turning out of the way, Is it not John Bunyan in that remarkable account of the Christian pilgrimage, the pilgrim's progress who reminds us that when Christian had come to the cross, there is a sense in which his troubles were only beginning. Did you think that they had ended? There was the hill difficulty before him and lions in the way and the valley of humiliation and Apollyon, the enemy of the soul, bestraddling the path. There was the valley of the shadow of death, and there were giants in the road, and flatterer and atheist and ignorance, who sought persuasively to turn him aside, and the perils of vanity fair, and doubting castle, and sickness, and finally the lone river of death which he had to cross as the waters surged around him. And as we read of these things, do we not say to one of us, how can the Christian cope with all this? Are not his foes too many and too great? And the answer you see is this, but God is our guide even unto death. His paths may be a mystery to us, and they often are. We cannot understand why certain things have turned out for us as they have done. And temptation and affliction and sorrow and pain may have crossed our path, and we have cried out, Lord, why have you sent these things to us? But they are not fortuitous, you see. They are not by chance. Our guide has led us into them. And as he has led us into them, so he will lead us out of them again to the glory of his great and holy name. The work that his grace has begun, the arm of his strength will complete, his promises, yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. As I close this morning, I exhort you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, take these cups, drink deeply of them, and let your thirst be quenched and slaked. And for those of you who may be here as our welcome guests who are not yet in Christ and know nothing of these things, I exhort you with all my strength 
to turn from a fading and a passing world where change and decay is all around us and there is no security in anything here to turn to this God who wants to be the covenant God of your salvation so that you by his grace may be able to say this God is my God forever and ever and will be my guide even to the end. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that out of ancient Scripture there is such modern and relevant truth. And we pray that each one of us, in whatever condition of heart we have met here this morning, from youngest through to eldest, from newest to the Christian faith to the most mature, we may be able to take words of consolation words of instruction, words of exhortation from this glorious passage of thine own word and be the richer and the better for it. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen.